Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Rohit Krishnan. Rohit is a venture capitalist and also author of the blog, Strange Loop Canon. Rohit, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So Rohit, you've written about a number of topics and you have an interesting perspective on those topics. So I'm going to name some some of those topics and then ask you to uh, share a condensed summary of of some of your thoughts, and particularly the the non-obvious perspectives that you have or, or things you, you've changed your, your, your mind on. So, so first, I want to start with a, with a, a broad one, which is talent spotting or, t- or talent identification. W- what do you think you have uh, unique on the topic or, or what do you have to say about it? I don't know if it's unique necessarily, but I think the most important thing that I think we overlook in talent spotting is the fact that we think we know what we found when we found it. This is one of the ones that I kind of it's also something I've changed my mind on a few times over my career, lots of and minuses in both directions. But I think ultimately um, the biggest problem as the pool of candidates or you know pool of talent has expanded, which it has over the last several decades, is that we are still stuck with the same ways of finding talent that we had sort of several years ago. So today, one of the commonalities that I found fascinating when you speak with people from pretty much any walk of life, you know, venture capital, startups, technology, government, um, companies, every single one of the folks who are at the top say that if I was starting out today, I would probably not get hired in the place where I have clearly excelled. And these are not said by, you know, random folk, right? I mean, these are spoken by like Nobel Prize winners, these are spoken by top CEOs, which already tells you something about the fact that today's selection process in becoming more and more and more stringent has somehow dropped the entire interesting variance that exists even at the top of the uh, talent pyramid. And to me, this is an example of um, Bergson's paradox, which effectively states something like towards the top of any distribution, the correlation that might be positive for the entire um, uh, population will start sort of seeming anti-correlated. To me, one of the ways in which this plays out is that we get really good at, I don't know, selecting people into elite universities by putting ever more stringent admissions tests and ever more stringent uh, grading criteria and ever more stringent interviews. And at the end of it, what you get are the folks who have gamified that entire process who kind of get whatever, you know, 1600 in their SATs and like top essay marks. And what you're missing out are all of the exciting misfits who make up, you know, a huge amount of the progress that we should be able to see in the world. as a consequence, and I, I mean, some of this is my background, like I come from India, where at the end of your high school, it's basically about as rat racy as it gets, right? I mean, I wrote entrance exams for six um, universities, and I think I was one of the people who wrote the least number. And in each one of them, you're ranked against the entire population who actually want to try to get in. And you, it's really about, oh, you miss one question. All of a sudden, you know, your, your future gets dropped up, which creates sort of, we're removing variance from our lives at the cost of trying to increase the mean a tiny amount and we're doing ourselves a disservice. So that's my sort of general thesis and talent. Um, I know we were talking about Tyler's book earlier. I'm pretty excited to see what he has to say about it. Yeah, what do you think is the potential solve for that? It's a good question. 
I think we need to give randomness a lot more chance. The thing that used to work is that, you know, you would select for people, let's say about the 80th percentile and, you know, let the actual act of them growing inside the organization weed out the people who didn't want to be there who wanted to go elsewhere. As you make the target criteria more and more stringent and you're selecting at the 99th percentile, you're missing out on all of the exciting stuff that happens between 80th and 99th percentile, which is kind of the problem that we're facing. So relaxation of the criteria and randomization of hiring in some of these cases in order to make sure that it's okay to make a mistake in hiring if it is a mistake in the first place, as long as you make up for it later, I think that ethos is tremendously interesting and important. Um, now, these are not the best examples of organizations that do this, but some banks or consulting firms do this to some extent. I mean, they do over-optimize still in looking for all the usual suspects of grades, et cetera. But at least one level later, they are willing to look for, oh, this person has done something interesting. They have you know, run the Olympics or they have done the Tour de France or they've started a hedge fund. Let's try and hire them in the possible, in the under the assumption that excellence is transferable. And after a few years, we'll figure out whether they want to stick around or whether they want to move on and do something else. I think that's important. In a funny way, this also translates to the sort of startup world where you're kind of giving people an optionality to say like, okay, here's a little bit of capital, be a YC, why don't you come in and start a company? And then the process of building that company becomes your test, as opposed to the test coming first and the building the company coming afterwards. It's, it's one of the things you, you've written about is, I think that we should be more open to eligibility as it relates to almost credentials or, or evaluating yes. talent. Talk a little bit about that. It's a corollary to what we were just talking about with talent, right? If I think about what makes a great engineer, and I look at that and go, okay, I need this person to have studied computer science, preferably had a great degrees in great, in great universities. There's a set of person that I end up looking for and hiring. Those are me looking for legible markers of what that person has done. What that misses out on is whether they would be able to thrive within a team environment, actually be able to contribute code. You know, they take 10x as long in debugging as the other person does. They're not creative when it comes to solving a problem. All of these are problems that you don't really get from the examination of the legible traits that comes through. Illegible traits, well, it become more legible these days, but illegible traits used to be things like you in your spare time spend time contributing to open source. You have a GitHub profile that is actually pretty active. And you could look at those and go, hmm, this person seems to go above and beyond in terms of sort of they really like doing what they're doing. So, you know, let's hire her, let's hire him because they presumably have a unique perspective and are able to solve the problem and we should at least give them a shot. They might be even better than we expect. Um, eligibility, what it does is that it gives higher variance at the cost of maybe a slightly lower mean, right? Because that's kind of what you're shooting for. And organizations, especially the way they're structured, could use a little bit more higher variance as opposed to lower means. Occasionally, for certain types of jobs, you do want lower mean. Like, I don't know, nuclear safety engineers, it'd be great if they didn't screw up, right? So you, you want to make sure that, like, you're testing that repeatedly. Although even there, I would imagine creativity has a lot of role to play. For almost all of the other um, types of organizations, you do want to provide more room for higher variance because that's what gives you the extra oomph in the in the output levels. That's the general theory on why I think eligibility is undervalued. Now, 
The reason it becomes overvalued in society or within large organizations is because if you run a 10,000 person company and you do need to hire 100 engineers, you got to tell the HR person something. And like at each layer of communication, you can't just say, just hire whom you think is the best person or hire the best people that you can find. You have to give some criteria. And these are easy ways to weed people out, right? Find everybody below 3.9 GPA, let's kick them out. It's an easier thing to do because you can actually measure it. But what that misses out on is that great programmer who got 3.8 GPA, but actually missed the semester because of whatever personal reason or like any of these other, other dimensions that sort of exist that gets lost out. I'm increasingly convinced that um, the extra alpha that you get, if I can phrase it that way, comes from identifying eligibility that you find interesting, which by definition, other people have not found interesting. And therefore doubling down on that is what gets you to sort of the superior outcome that you would have gotten uh, than what you would have gotten otherwise. That, that, that makes sense. One way of talking about the sort of future of, of higher education is, is thinking about it in the context of sort of the future of, of talent identification, because higher education is a big yes. sorting hat. Um, but it's also the future of talent cultivation, both in terms of uh, preparing people for the, the the job market, perhaps, or preparing people to be citizens, uh, or you know, et, et cetera. So, what excites you, or or, or what is sort of your um, your dream for for what that could look like? I think higher education has gone through this period where it was absolutely fantastic, and that's now groaning under the scale um, that it's 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 kind of plays under. So um, it's something sort of I'm, I'm looking into at the moment, but if you look at sort of most of the scientists, I don't know, say pre-1950 or 1920, there was, they're fairly heterogeneous. If you go back far enough, there, there's a lot of citizen sciences, scientists who kind of meet in informal groups, discuss with each other as well as sort of come out with ideas. But especially afterwards, once the large universities were set up, relatively well-established, relatively well-credentialed, there is a boom in terms of, you know, you can go study physics at Princeton and kind of move on to an academic position where if you are smart enough, you can make enough contributions and therefore sort of continue in that trajectory. It also acted as a fantastic signal for the to the rest of the world that you know you were smart and you kind of knew what you were talking about, you can study stuff. What happened by now is that I think we have passed a peak of a percentage of people who have successfully gone into college and come out the point where the pool is no longer shallow, right? The pool is deep. The default expectation for most of the jobs that, I don't know, we would look at, for example, is that, yeah, I mean, we would require somebody who's college educated. And it's become a default assumption and there is that inflation that goes alongside it. As a consequence, the two giant benefits of going to academic institutions, at least from a utilitarian sense, one of them coming out with enough skill sets so that they can go out and find themselves a, a successful job in sort of whatever we can solve. And number two, being able to push forward the frontier of the academia in whatever field that they have chosen. I think as it stands, they're probably, I don't want to say failing, but it's groaning in both of those segments. I mean, as far as hiring is concerned, yes, you might actually look at it, but a lot of the other signals become equally, if not more important, right? I mean, like you would look and say like, can this person actually do the job is becoming more of an important indicator in at least tech in some areas, as opposed to sort of the other segment saying, you know, can this, uh, per, sorry, does this person have so-and-so degree from so-and-so college? That is no longer sufficient for you to get through career because we've all now seen enough number of people that the A-B test to say like the correlation between having a degree as well as being able to successfully execute something has shifted a little bit. 
And on the academia side, I mean, longer list of questions, but we have definitely gone way deep into like a careerist academic mood in many ways. And there is definitely a lack of incentives to push for anything super innovative within academia. You're, you're almost um, pressured, peer pressured, I suppose, implicitly into going for the incremental innovation as opposed to sort of the earth shattering innovation because you're, you know, I don't know, one bad year of uh, not enough paper writing away from not getting tenure or even after getting tenure, you've spent sort of six years doing incremental work in which case you really don't want to particularly swing for the fences. So the, the future of higher education as it stands to me has to revolve around sort of solving for these two problems. So problem number one that we talked about in terms of does it actually impart the skills is almost a question of should universities be doing what they're doing today? And to me, the answer is fairly clearly no, right? I mean, there in, in many ways, I'm a huge fan of liberal education, but you should identify and acknowledge that liberal education um, is not necessarily going to give you a job, but you should do it because you like it, which is totally fine. And that's fair and we should do it. But whether it's through trade schools, whether it's through going out and getting certifications, whether it's through on-the-job training, that's kind of what we should be solving for at point number one. Point number two, in the academia side, we should try and take away as much of the bureaucratic overhang and overhead that exists within the institutions to say, like, you should not be spending two years trying to figure out something more interesting and important because that, you know, makes you take a step back amongst your peers, step off the red queen race, you know, step outside the rat race and actually try to contribute something a little bit more meaningful that is relevant to you. I mean, we should not have this many academics answering the question of what would you actually like to research with something that they're not actually doing. Because they all, that's, you know, there was one of the surveys, I think it was shared by Pat Collison saying sort of something exactly that saying, you know, if you ask the academics, is this what you actually want to be researching or would you change your research if you were given more money, time, um, resources, a large percentage of them say yes, which to me indicates that our curiosity-driven driven search process is probably not running at its optimum, and we can tweak that. Yeah. I want to segue a little bit to how you think we should be doing grants di differently, or, or what's exciting to you about sort of the, the grant ecosystem or where it could go. And another variation of that is, you know, how should billionaires be spending their money differently today? And is it fair to summarize your view that they should be more eccentric and uh, experimental or, or what, what would you edit or add to that? I would 100% agree with that. I think we, for all that we kind of look at the behaviors and, you know, smile at them on Twitter, we do not have nearly enough idiosyncratic billionaires in the world, which is weird to me because we have more billionaires than we have ever had before. So I don't understand what, what folks are thinking about here. Um, more to the point, I think this is one where things have changed quite dramatically since sort of I wrote my first article on this faith on, sort of, uh, on Medici and Thiel, which was the examination of the fact that Thiel fellowships have had an incredible payoff, um, regardless of how you look at it. Whereas, you know, so few others have copied the method at that particular point. Now, we're talking sort of a year after that I wrote that or a year and a half. And Coincidentally, it seems like we are in a flowering of, you know, new grants popping up. There's a new one every day, right? I mean, there's a whole list of them. I think uh, Sam Obsman has a list of Overwatch catalog, which kind of lists uh, several of these um, grant-making institutions that sits there. I think on the one hand, it's fantastic that the grant-making institutions are increasing their um, 
penetration into sort of the quasi-academic sphere as I kind of think of it, and they're trying to increase the variance dial um, that is placed on it. The two um, perhaps, I don't know, semi-critical views that I would have on it is that number one, I don't feel like a lot of the a lot of these uh, grants know what they want to find and they're trying to fund the people who want to go find them. And in general, I'm not sure whether that is the best way to kind of go about it, just because if you already know what you want to go find, um, are you then kind of constraining the search process or constraining the optimization process in order to sort of go out and find them? Nintel has, um, Jose has a, a series of like fund people, not projects, which I'm sympathetic to for exactly this reason, where you want to find interesting people and have their curiosity be the, the search the, the search light as opposed to sort of you defining the thing and then saying, can somebody else kind of go out and figure out how to do that? It's a relatively minor nitpick, I feel like, because we are still in the early days. The second thing that I would probably say is that grants as it exists is always going to be a marginal form of funding, not the average form of funding. And we should be experimental on the margins, but the experimentation on the margins in no way kind of, you know, reduces the need for changes in the average. So most of the funding is still going to come from governments and large corporates and institutions. Changing a small percentage of that in any direction that we choose is going to have enormous impacts, whereas changes in the margin could have enormous impacts, but that's more of a VC style bet, right? I mean, you're trying to sort of do small payoff type bets in the hope that one of them can actually become a shattering. I think they're both equally important, but the existence of one does in no way negate the existence of the other or the need for the other, which I think is important and to, to occasionally state. Yeah, no, that, that, that's well put. Cycling a little bit, what, what about the internet creates these barbells or these barbells or, 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 or what is, is behind the idea that the polls continue to get even, even wider? across kind of this is one that like man i keep thinking about this again and again and again i I was kind of reading a little bit more about this for our on the relationship to organizational structures actually before our, our our call today as well because the one answer is that you know pre-internet we were all stuck in our own um little markets and the markets themselves were connected to each other through sort of weak or strong ties but the markets remained individual. What that meant is like, if you were, and you can think about it geographically or functionally, however you want, but like if you were in, I don't know, the banking sector in the UK, <clears throat> the banking sector in the UK would have a power law curve as it exists in sort of most institutions. And then it would connect to banking sector in Germany and banking sector in the US, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there would be different ones. Once you, once these things start getting linked up, you suddenly start having a global power law curve where you know the information actually spreads much more drastically or easily. And my general hypothesis about the way, at least in some of these networks, if you're able to have, you know, if markets coalesce and start getting larger and larger, and the competition starts happening intra-market, if you were, or rather you're going from many small um, islands to sort of one ginormous island, you know, we are all we are all going back to this Pangea in the geographic sense you would start seeing much steeper power law curves. You would start seeing some huge winners um, 
uh, a fallow middle as well as sort of a long tail that ends at the end. Whereas before, if you have multiple power law curves and you stack them up, the middle is naturally going to be much fatter. So in general, the integration of markets with each other, I think, is one of the things that kind of compresses the middle as well as creates two poles. The second phenomenon that I think is interesting is the easier um, information, like if you think of a, you know, I don't know, the world as a network where you have nodes as well as you have edges, the edges help the information transmit much more quickly, the nodes actually process and then decide to transmit or not. The easier the information transmission is from point A to point B, anything to do with information will naturally start has showing whether scale free or not, heavy tail phenomenon in some way, shape or form, because like you, it, it takes a lot of work for these things to kind of pass through. Um, it used to take a lot of work and now it's, I don't know, much more seamless. As a consequence, again, you're getting to a world where you suddenly start seeing barbells, where you have some outsized winners from the phenomenon, as well as sort of the middle getting squeezed, as well as in the tail end, you have, you know, the, the long tail together that make up the other um, bell of that barbell. Um, internet, I think, is extraordinarily interesting because it's sort of, I don't know, it's probably the best exemplification of this phenomenon. Like, you know, we're talking across the Atlantic fairly easily. And this would be very difficult if you tried to replicate this with, uh, I don't know, paper and pen or books, right? I mean, you suddenly stuff. You, this is a very different phenomenon at that point. So that's the biggest benefit of internet has been the fact that information has effectively become costless to transmit point A to point B. But that also means that if information is relevant to your business, to deal with it and do anything with it has also become costless to transmit from point A to point B, which means everything in the middle just gets compressed. It's a price of efficiency that we pay these days. Signaling a little bit, we were just talking about how internet makes transmitting information costless. You've also written about clustering and, and, and yes. how clustering works and the benefits of clustering. What have you learned there? Or what do you find particularly interesting or underexplored? I'm interested in clustering and I guess one question and one observation. The observation is that anytime we look at spikes of innovation in any field, usually you find it relatively co-located with a cluster of other similar innovation that has existed around it. Whether you take this in the <coughs> simplest form related to sort of something like Silicon Valley, whether you think of it as like Renaissance Florence, whether you think of it as like, I don't know, the golden ages in, um, uh, in Iraq, like you can put it wherever you like, but you, you do see this kind of co-located. If you, even if you think of like science in itself, whether it was coming up in the UK during Newton's times, there seems to be like, a, like an effect implicitly or explicitly where you kind of, you put people together, suddenly you have um, the clusters primacy over um, the individual ideas, if you will, even if the individuals are whom we kind of see repeatedly again and again. The network effect there is the is the question there, where like with the internet in particular, I'm not entirely sure what the delineation of like, you've taken away the importance of geography to a large extent, and you've taken away, I don't know, the importance of being co-located or information transmission in any extent. As a consequence, the companies that provide the maximum value over the internet suddenly start being even more geographically co-located in Silicon Valley. So it feels a little bit like, you know, while the cost of information has plummeted, the cost of being next to other people who are producing amazing companies and startups have suddenly skyrocketed. Maybe it was a temporary phenomenon. I mean, you're obviously sort of a, uh, you've, you've jumped across the, you know, 
the entirety of the US from point A to point B from one coast to the other. So maybe it's just that it took a while before the full promise of the internet could be realized that we didn't need to be next door to each other anymore. But it's a question. I think I'm not entirely sure where this stands, but like when you look at, I don't know, simultaneous innovation is just so, 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 so common. It is unbelievable, whether it's in, you know, evolution where Darwin wrote um, and he finally published because he learned that somebody else was going to publish a book or, you know, Albatross and Wallace. Whether you think about jet engines being built by both sides of the war relatively, relatively simultaneously, like individual discoveries in physics or like Newton and Leibniz coming up with calculus. Like there's a there's a ton of these things that seem to happen co-located, but also for, you know, you look at the Martians, you know, John von Neumann and his ilk, where you have a large number of geniuses who are relatively co-located with each other who come up with great inventions linked to each other. So there is something about that bouncing off of ideas and egging each other on that is important. At the same time, I don't know whether there is a proactive building of seniors is something we even know how to think about or how to do. I feel it's a, we look at it outside in a little bit like a cosmic phenomenon and marvel that it happened. But at the same time, I think create every single one of its creation doesn't sound like the kind of thing that would have resulted in it. Like, you know, let's have a massively rich doge or like a, a family in Europe that starts providing patronage and thereby kickstarts a movement in arts. Maybe, I mean, you know, it doesn't sound like this founding story of something that will result in the Renaissance. I'm not sure it, it potentially could happen, but like there's a lot of these questions that don't really have very clear, clear answers. And it feels like in some ways, how to use the internet to further supercharge creation of clusters is something we are barely getting to grips with. Um, maybe one way to point out is that like, you know, COVID happened sort of two years ago and that's the first time video calls really skyrocketed, which is a weird thing to think about in hindsight because like, video calls have been around for a long, long, long while. And they've had the technology to do them for a long while, we just kind of never did it or in the scale. So maybe it's a cultural thing where we kind of need to figure out how to deal with each other um, over, you know, why they're not physically co-located. And, uh, you know, the human learning curve is uh, shallower than the technological learning curve. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I asked Tyler uh, Cowan the other day, you know, where he wants more literature in the talent space. And one of the things he said is, is precisely on, on seniors or precisely on um, what is it about the fit of small groups or how to Put the right small groups together or the right environments that leads to um outsized outcomes the other thing he asked for was a study of late bloomers um yes what, what leads them to be successful henry oliver is writes a reasonable amount about uh, opsimans and sort of what he calls late late bloomers where um i don't think we have lessons yet to gain from that i think the one of the interesting things about sort of this discovery space that i find is that so often the answer seems to be that the people need to be curious as well as provide a room to kind of go off and pursue their curiosity inside their organization or outside in their free time or otherwise. And like, if you do enough of them, there will be some late bloomers, if you want to call them that, right? Like who come out of the other end with something extraordinary. Even my, my general, albeit slightly hedonistic perspective is that even if they don't come up with something extraordinarily interesting, at the very least, it's useful to let people go out and pursue the stuff that they're most excited about. Because 
I mean, that is sort of the meaning of life, right? I mean, we kind of want to be spending time doing cool stuff that we are intrigued by and maybe something amazing will come out of it, but maybe the very fact that this is one of the few things that you do that is curiosity driven as opposed to goal driven is what kind of lets some of these seniors flourish and some of the individuals flourish as well. Yeah, we'll we'll put the, uh, I want to segue into, um, you've done, you know, a bit of research and writing into why orgs uh, decay or, 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 you know, um, stagnate, especially as, as they grow. And there's been previous, you know, research on this, obviously, but I, I think you've come to have some interesting thoughts on it. Um, why don't you talk a, a bit about that? Two, I suppose, related thoughts here. The big company phenomenon is one where, I think this is one that I'm kind of um, reading up on at the moment in terms of org structures. The hypothesis that I have is that there are some org structures that might be able to withstand longer periods of uh, either stagnation or decline whereas some of structures are not. And the, the related point here is like, the decay of what actually made you great over a period of time needs to be dealt with if you, if you as an organization need to want to stick around for a long period of time. So let's bring this back to reality. I looked at um, what are the companies that are longest lasting, right? And it's funny, like when you look at companies that are longer lasting, um, the best, I don't know, a couple of hundred years, 300 years, you suddenly start coming up with some financial institutions like Barclays has been around for a while, Bank of England has been around for a while, where their fundamental business barely changes and it's integrally linked with the entire economy. And you start coming up with things like, I don't know, ale houses or like you build beer where your, your demand is effectively not going to die out at any given point in time. You roll back, you go off to you know Japan, where you have a lot more old institutions. You see some of them effectively remaining similar size and kind of growing. Some, you know, they built um, shrines. So as long as the religion exists, you kind of have a business that you can go off for, or you build, or you provide I don't know uh, mochi to the and, and green tea to the pilgrims who come to a particular shrine. So you kind of look at these businesses, and they're very clearly organizations that are, I want to say anti-innovative because they take pride in stability, right? They provide the same service day in and day out and they do not want to deviate from that at all because any deviation that they do can result in the end of a, I don't know, 1700 year or 1300 year old dynasty. Like you've survived for a while, but you suddenly go into any form of real estate kind of conversation and like the, the construction firm that kind of started in 700 and died in the great financial crisis. I mean, those kind of things happen. So in one way, this is kind of the, the uh, an example where you effectively don't, your strategy doesn't decay because it's not really, like you're explicitly focusing on new growth as kind of one of your yardsticks, if you will, for these companies. Larger companies today, especially that we see in like, I don't know, the technology space where we both sit, is characterized by an, a froth of change on the part of the consumers. Like the consumers who bought computing in IBM's days, you know, when they built S360 are not the consumers who are buying iPads today, right? I mean, and even the people who bought iPads five years ago, 10 years ago are not the people who are buying iPads today. The people who bought software five, 10 years ago are not the people who are buying software today. The, the expectations have changed as a, con- and like, the entire market ecosystem has effectively shifted. So if you look at the larger organizations that actually exist and the things that they need to do to kind of keep their fingers and grips on the market 
and then be able to bring about a successful product to change the perception um, or change their entire movement, their internal structures are oftentimes completely opposed to the way that they actually need to kind of work um, in order to sort of bring something out for um, bring something out for like I don't know the, to the uh, to the market. So if you are you know Microsoft and you wanted to build a product that does anything that impinges on any other parts of the ecosystem like Windows and Office as it used to be during you know Balmer's heyday you're going to get so much pushback from so many parts of the organization because you know marketing doesn't want to do work on something that they think is one shot because they're not really getting compensated for it they'll fight with sales for it they'll fight with technology for it they'll fight with IT for it fight with the existing product teams for it the internal inertia in wanting to try something new because the result the benefits of it are either highly concentrated in the new person who tried or you know the while the pain is diffused right every single person has to do extra percentage of work in order to sort of try and bring it to life, which means that large companies, by enforcing a norm to reduce the internal inertia, become the type of companies where you need huge levels of internal alignment before you can actually do something new. And huge levels of internal alignment almost never happen. I think they're just they're just incredibly hard to do, man. Like, I'm sure I'm sure you know sort of folks who have tried. I have sort of seen them trying, but like you're kind of almost forcing your company to become a little bit like a bureaucracy if um, in fact, even if it's not in you know law or not by fiat, because just by definition, you need to get too many people on your side to actually push these things through. One of the things I wrote was also like this is why they bring consulting firms in, right? I mean to kind of either try and muscle through this a little bit, which rarely happens, but more importantly, they work to make sure that your internal narrative kind of remains semi-coherent, which is also funnily enough the reason that you're not going to be able to try to do experimentation very clearly. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. I mean, the um, say more about one thing you've also written about, uh, you were mentioning, is, uh, is, is hierarchies um, and wh why they're yes. amazing to get things done generally, but frustrating to get any one thing done. The hierarchies are... You know, there's a there's a fantastic Herbert Simon paper um, that kind of speaks a little bit about the import of how hierarchies actually form. And to some extent, if you look in nature or if you look in individual sort of organization uh, organizations, it emerges as a result of the fact that occasionally you do need specialization in individual bits and pieces in order for you to be able to kind of come out with um, easily be able to swap step out. But a consequence of the hierarchy is that the information transmission through the hierarchy is becomes slower, right? I mean, it gets sort of impeded at different points in time uh, or different levels of the organization. The existence of a highly hierarchical organization makes decision-making within that organization highly efficient when everything is aligned and the environment doesn't shift too much. If the environment is constantly shifting, you're not going to be able to get alignment within the hierarchy because the information needs to travel up the entire chain and then come back down the entire chain again. And that's like a really, that's really, really complicated. Um, one of the areas that I would like to study a little bit more in this space, but I haven't really done it, a good job of it yet is like how militaries think about it. And from at least the outside in point of view, they look about they look at it a little bit like we have free ranging units as well as the rest of the units. So some folks actually get a lot of battlefield autonomy or like, you know, 
you're effectively a group that can kind of make up your own decisions with the basic objective that you get that is slightly vague perhaps, but at least you kind of know what you're fighting for and the tactics and everything else is that stuff that you need to figure out. Whereas, you know, the full top-down hierarchical model of like, I will know everything that my subordinate is doing and they will know everything their subordinate is doing and they'll know everything their subordinate is doing just doesn't work. At some point, the spans and layers get complex enough that like you're effectively going after a, a phantom if you think that'll actually give you any information. You've written quite a bit about uh, polarization. And, and what do you think is, is non-obvious or what have you uncovered in your research as to, as to, as to why we're polarized or how to think about uh, or a mental model for polarization? I don't know to what extent it is a function of the fact that we don't have enough strong um, red teams articulating opposing viewpoints in the world. So polarization is fascinating because the, 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 there are several axes along which we are polarized that are highly informed by things happening outside or viewpoints that you might share. There are also several axes along which we are no longer polarized because the spotlight has gone off of them and we are kind of a little bit freer to make formal points. I think the, the two things that I would perhaps say there um, with a certain degree of trepidation, one is perhaps that you can't shout away polarization on either direction. Like I think the changing of minds that people do is not something that you can insist on. It's something that you can encourage, right? I mean, this is one that I've gotten exquisitely attuned to having a having a toddler in the house where changing their minds is a function of time and explanations. And it's not a function of, you know, you insisting that you're right and the other person needs to change their mind. Number two is like the number of axes in which, along which we are not polarized substantially outnumbers, I feel, the number of axes along which we are polarized, at least those of us who are lucky enough to live in relatively well-ordered societies and, and have relatively well-ordered lives. As a consequence, focusing on the points of disagreement is rarely a winning recipe over focusing on the points, over the points of agreement. Um, I mean, we have, like at least in the day job, we occasionally have conversations in like, I don't know, negotiating a term sheet or something or negotiating a document where, you would have like the three niggly things that kind of take up 90% of your time. And sometimes, uh, oftentimes the right answer is to say, what are we trying to get to? And sort of step back a little bit and see like, we agree on 99.5% of stuff. So let's kind of focus on that a little bit and kind of sidestep the issue unless it's incredibly important at this particular juncture in this particular fashion. Um, ultimately though, I think one thing that I would perhaps end with is like, Consciously or unconsciously, our solution to most of the complexity of the world has been to come up to has been to create an adversarial system, whether that's in the courts, whether that's in the you know regulatory environment, etc. The adversarial system acts as one way to get to the truth, as anybody who has done debating would know that it's probably not the best way to get to the truth. It's just one that we have found so far, and the negation of that in many ways is to find like change the shift, the conversation to a topic where you perhaps are not as polarized and then kind of talk a little bit, connect to each other as, 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 as people, right? And in private life, I think that's what we see more and more. In public life, I feel we've all gotten way too performative because I think it's very easy to do that, you know, whether it's on Twitter or whether it's on news. As long as we try and uh, tamp that down a little bit, I think we'll do just fine. Yeah, it's funny. I'll let you go in a, in a second. Mark Andreessen talks about or asks, you know, what is the internet, uh, the camera or the engine? I use it. Is it influencing behavior or or just uh, catalog categorizing or cataloging it? But of course, when we're even if it's just catalog, you know, uh, 
showing it. The camera also changes behavior by just, you know, being in front of the camera all the time. <laughs> and yes. so, yeah, the camera becomes an engine in, in this weird way. I mean, if all the world is indeed a stage, I think we all end up becoming performers, which I don't think is all that great, especially if you do it all the time, because then we are doing things to have done them as opposed to doing things because we want to do them, uh, which is an important distinction, I feel like. Totally. Underappreciated one. Yeah. Rohit, thank you for coming on. For, for listeners who are interested in these ideas, want to go deeper, Rohit's blog, Strange Loop Canon, is a, is a must-read. Uh, Rohit, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My absolute pleasure, Eric. This was awesome. great fun. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global Podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.